Welcome to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films every Friday morning from 9 to 10 a.m. Pacific and online at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Korngall picks up where the previous film, Restrepo, left off. The same men, the same valley, the same commanders but a very different look at the experience of war. The film explains how war works, what it feels like, and what it does to young men who fight it. One soldier cheers when he kills an enemy fighter. Another looks into the camera and asks God if he will ever forgive him for all the killing he has done. It's a remarkable film and a a more than worthy um, addendum, follow-up, whatever it is, additional information to the film Restrepo and the men in, in, who are a part of it. Uh, we're joined today by the director of this wonderful new documentary, Korngall, Sebastian Younger. Sebastian, you may know him from some of his previous work, including uh, the, the, the books of The Perfect Storm, Death in Belmont, and of course his work on Restrepo and Which Way to the Front Line from Here. Sebastian, welcome to film school. Thank you very much. Thank you. Um, and let's let's get right to it because uh, people may or may not have seen Restrepo. Shame on them. But at the same time, uh, at the same time, what is Korengal? Well, Korengal is a documentary film uh, that I pulled out of the um, the material that Tim and I shot uh, in oh seven oh eight in the Korengal Valley, mostly at an outpost called Restrepo. So our first film was called Restrepo. It was a visceral look at combat. I wanted, we wanted to give civilians um, something like the experience of combat for 90 minutes. Uh, Korngal is a different movie. It's quieter. It's more introspective. It really tries to um, examine the effects of combat on young men and answer some really profound questions about the experience. What, you know, how does, what's courage? What do soldiers think of courage and fear? And, and primarily, primarily, why do they miss it? Why do so many soldiers miss combat once they're out? Yeah. Yeah. If you open the film Korngall with uh, it's a specialist, and is it uh, uh, who who says uh, I, I I was scared all the time, you know? The, it, it's a, it's unlike like anything else you've ever been in, and I would go back in a heartbeat. That's the strange and confusing thing, <laughs> not just you know for the soldiers' families and spouses and kids or whoever, but. To the soldiers themselves, they don't even quite understand it. It really is puzzling, but they went through a very hard time out there. And um, they come out, and they sort of look back at that time and sort of idealize it. But I should add, you know, people often do that, even civilians. Um, I I remember my parents telling me that after the Blitz in London, you know, 24,000 people, civilians, were killed in the Blitz in London. But the society really banded together, and... um, it, it, and there was an enormous amount of cooperation and collaboration between people in those terrible times, and apparently Londoners actually really were quite nostalgic about the Blitz later. So that, that reaction isn't just soldiers. I mean, we all have that in us in some way. Yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit about the, the, the geography involved here. We're, we're, Korngal is in Afghanistan. Tell me what makes it so uh, strategically important, or at least in, for the purposes of the uh, fighting the Taliban, what made it such an important thing? Well, it was in Kunar province, which um, uh, in eastern Afghanistan, which even since in the Soviet times was a very, very important province to control um, if you're going to strategically control Afghanistan. And um, 
So the the Korngal was used as a very, very rough little valley tucked away in the mountains, and it was used by the Taliban as a base of operations. The valley itself wasn't um, inherently important. It's just a few thousand people, and it was sort of high mountain valley, but it was a great base of operations to attack other parts of Kunar that actually were quite important, like the Pesh River Valley. So the Americans, uh, instead of taking um, contact from the Taliban all up and down the Pesh River Valley and elsewhere in Kunar, they just put a base in, in the Korangal and fought, you know, sort of fought there, and it, it kept the rest of the areas more or less clear of conflict for a while. What I remember from Restrepo was, in a, in a manner of speaking, um, being in Korangal and where they were strategically uh, was basically a finger in in the face of the Taliban telling them, uh, basically, we can put a base anywhere we want and you guys can't do anything about it. Um, and in and in Korngal, it seems to me, at least what they talked about, uh, it, it was that the, the objective wasn't to attack the Taliban, it was to let the Taliban try and take them on. Is that is that a fair statement? Yeah, I mean, you know, you also have to... You have to remember these are, uh, in some cases, they're very, very young guys making sense of the situation that okay. where they're not giving all the given all the information. But you know, more or less, I think that's true. Uh, what the Americans didn't want to be doing was fighting the Taliban along the Pesh River Valley, where, where they were building roads and schools and medical clinics and things like that. Mm. They would much rather be fighting those guys up in the mountains, which is what happened. And um, the Korangal was their their redoubt, their sort of refuge, and the Americans stuck a base right in the middle of it. And the Taliban were absolutely furious, and it provoked a lot of fighting. Um, one advantage of fighting up in an area like that is that there's a very low civilian population. Mm-hmm. So uh, just in terms of collateral damage, um, both from you know Taliban activity and American activity, it, I think it was probably a better place to fight, fight it out than you know in the middle of Asadabad or whatever. Yeah, yeah. So it, it, well, there was strategic importance to being in in Korngal, and so, from what you just said, so that that was in, that was important fight, waging a war against this this um, this enemy. Um, the there was something that came up in the film called uh, just to give some sense of how much under attack. The men of uh, Camp Restrepo were under something called ticks. Tell us a little bit about that and how many uh, ticks did these guys encounter in the course of uh, a year? Well, in military parlance, contact is fighting, right? right. So if you take contact, that means you're you're fighting. Uh, so a tick, T I C, is troops in contact. So you that, that's sort of what you hear it on the radio and stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Vegas is in a tick. You know, Chosen Company is in a tick. It, it, it meant a fire, means a firefight. Uh, and these guys, I can't remember exactly the number, but they were at Restrepo. It was a 20-man position, okay, and not even a full platoon. Uh, up on this ridge, no running water, no cooked food, no, um, for no, not even electricity for a while, certainly no Internet or phone or television or anything like that. Um, and they were up on that, up on that ridge for a year, and... Um, they were they they were in some two hundred and something ticks. You know, basically, as Captain Kearney said, uh, they, the Taliban basically fought them for nine months straight. Yeah, you know, that was by, the, by the numbers. That yeah. was the statistic for nine months. So about two hundred and seventy encounters, uh, firefights. Yeah. Imagine fighting somebody every day in a in a gun battle for yeah. nine months straight, and that's what these guys were dealing with. It's that's right. It's amazing. That's uh, right. Um. What was it about? Now, I, I, I mean, tell us a little bit about your decision. And it sounds like, from what I read, uh, 
Tim Hetherington's uh, um, desire to take the footage that you shot for Restrepo, and you shot a lot of it, over 150 hours of, of footage. Uh, tell us a little bit about what went into your decision to move forward with Korngall uh, in that regard. Well, Tim and I briefly tried to sell a three-part TV series in that National Geographic. They had bought Restrepo, and I thought we might... They were all. I mean, we knew there was this amazing material that hadn't been used mm-hmm. for Restrepo mm-hmm. in the 150 hours. We thought maybe we can sell a three-part series to Nat Geo. They didn't go for it. We dropped the idea. And then after the Oscars, Tim was killed in Libya in combat. Yeah. And a terrible, terrible day for a lot of people. Yeah. And um, uh, I didn't really want to go back to the topic for you know, a bunch of reasons, but I... Uh, my producer and a good friend of Nick's name, uh, Tim's name, requested sort of pushed me back into it. And indeed, there really was a whole other movie in there. And so, uh, a couple of years later, after Tim's death, I got to work on it. And and I'm I'm glad you did because I uh, the the part of the, the that's most striking uh, about Corn uh, Gall is that um, these guys are coming home. You know, what are the impacts? What are the you know hearing from them? And this such an emotionally raw perspective about their experiences and and this transition back into civilian life it's uh, you know we just we we love the battle we love the heroism and the camaraderie and all that and we often just forget that these people are coming back into a world that is must seem alien in every sense of the word to them it is alien to them. I mean, they've had effectively a very intense tribal experience. You know, I mean, they're fighting in groups of 30 or so in very harsh terrain and completely relying on each other and sleeping shoulder to shoulder. They're, they're effectively living a sort of tribal existence, which we're wi- humans are wired for, and it makes us feel extremely good. And they come back to a society which is which can be very, very alienating, even to people who weren't in combat. Um Post-industrial society, like American society, has, uh, for all the technological, wonderful stuff that's going on, we have the highest rates of depression and suicide and child abuse and mass killings uh, of any time in human history. And that's the society these guys are coming back to. And so, of course, they're just seeing, they're just seeing it, I think they're seeing it clearly for the first time because they had a different experience of tremendous intimacy and, and interreliance, and suddenly they're, you know, in an American suburb sleeping by themselves in an air-conditioned room, and it, they freak out. And, um, you know, in some ways, I, you know, he's, uh, it's occurred to me, like, who really has the problem, us or them? Yeah. Yeah. I want to remind our listeners that we're speaking with Sebastian Younger, the director of the film uh, documentary Korengal. Um, and th- for those of you who are within the sound of my voice, uh, terrestrially speaking, uh, the film is opening today at the University Town Center Theater across the street from where I'm sitting. And next week, um, that would be June 20th and 21st, men from Battle Company, the uh, 10th Mountain and Viper Company, will be there at the University Town Center for a question and answer at 7 o'clock. Um, and it sounds like you know some of these people. Yeah, I mean, those guys, uh, 10th Mountain was the unit that preceded the guys I was with. And um, a Viper Company, that was the first idea, and they came afterwards. Or These are all guys that served in the Korangal or in that area. And um, I, I'm sure there's plenty in there I don't know personally, but um, I know the kind of guys they are, and uh, they're really worth showing up for and asking questions. They're... Um, 
you know, so that's um, in the, these guys. I think would be quite quite eager to to share their experiences with people. And I think sometimes um, sometimes these guys can be very touched that people want to know. Actually, yeah, I, I, I that that will be an incredible experience to um, to be able to talk with these guys uh, in light of the film. Um, amazing. Um, do you, have you stayed in touch with many of the men from from the uh, from the unit you you were with? Yeah, I mean, some more than others. You know, I'm yeah. closer to some than than others now with the movie. I'm in touch with a bunch of them because you know things are sort of active and moving and happening. But um, right. yeah, one guy in particular, Brendan O'Byrne, is a really close friend of mine. He lives near me, and and you know we talk. Yeah, God, just about every day. Yeah, I, I want to point listeners to to the website for Corngall, and that is I just lost it from it is CorngallTheMovie uh, dot com. And you can now buy the DVD, by the way, uh, or see it in the theater. Um, and uh, there are a couple things. I know that you're involved with, uh, uh, or you are, now tell me what your involvement, if any, is with Outbound, uh, uh, Outward Bound vet for Veterans. Is that something you're a part of? Yeah. Uh, well, let me just, uh, we should probably spell Korengal just to make, oh, just yeah. to make sure it's K-O-R-E-N-G-A-L. <laughs> so KorengalTheMovie.com, okay. just to make sure people got that. But um, yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, I help people out when I can. Outward Bound for Vets is um, one program I've, I've assisted. Um, when it, Outward Bound is a wilderness school, and they they have um, they run trips where they take combat vets and put them in the wilderness with each other. So it's all combat vets, and they um, you know sort of air their experiences in in a sort of essentially a safe environment because it's it's nothing but other vets in a very beautiful setting, and it seems to be quite therapeutic actually. Yeah. Um, and I, I want to point people to your uh, talk, your TED Talk. It's also at com. I'll say it in K-O-R-E-N-G-A-L, themovie.com, Korngall. And the, your TED Talk, which I thought was uh, uh, really very interesting and I, I, very insightful in terms of this idea, why, why are they so attracted what is it about this experience this very very intense bonding experience and what are these people what are vets looking for when they come back here and i think yeah you know it's 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 such an outrageous question you know why do why do men miss war you know it's so politically provocative and it almost feels like you shouldn't say it out loud or something because it's too offensive but you should always say the truth out loud you know and it, it is the truth many of them really do yeah. They really do miss it, and they don't understand it, and their spouses, their wives sure as hell don't understand it, but there it is. And, you know, every generation this comes up. There was a writer, a wonderful writer, last name of Broyles, uh, who wrote an article for Esquire magazine in the 70s, I think it was in the 70s, maybe the 80s, called Why Men Miss War. And, you know, that was the previous generation's attempt to sort of crack the code of this, like, what is it they're missing? And, um... What I, you know, what I could determine and what I tried to discuss in my TED Talk was, you know, you're getting dosed with two very intense chemicals in combat. On one hand, you're getting a lot of adrenaline, yeah. um, obviously, right? And on the other hand, you're getting this incredible closeness, this incredible bond. Like I said, these guys are sleeping, like, literally shoulder to shoulder. I mean, the little bunk that I had, they eventually made some beehives, little plywood huts up at Aristropo. And, you know, when I was up there, I had, you know, a little bunk. And from where I, you know, from my bunk, if I, at night, if I stretched my arm out, I could touch three other men. And we were, you know, sleeping in really tight quarters. And it's claustrophobic on the one hand, but it's... um 
it's also kind of really nice, you know, and uh, it feels very, very safe and secure, right, emotionally, and uh, that's that's its own drug. And so then they come home, and they come home to a society that's dull on the one hand and totally alienated on the other hand, and they freak out. Of course they do. They know what's healthy and what isn't, and they know what we're doing here isn't that doesn't feel that healthy. Yeah. And you know, I just inject one other thing, and that is they're coming back to people who have no idea the that the that that guy that's sitting next to you that you're sleeping next to is is your security blank is, is your life is is the person who will could save your life or you could be the person who saves his life. There's not I can't imagine any. I mean, that's about as intense of a of a yeah. sense that you would ever have. And, you know, it's really interesting, like, so Restrepo was a 20-man position, and there were outposts out there, bigger outposts that almost got overrun by the Taliban. You know, and, and you know, if they, you know, you overrun a position, everybody dies. Yeah. And it hasn't happened, thank God, but it can happen. And um, the only thing keeping that from happening at night, uh, in the early morning, uh, hours of morning, are the guards, right? You have two guys on guard duty, one in the guard tower and one in the 50-cal pit, and, um... So those are the, you know, they switch the guard duties during the night, um, two-hour shifts. And I remember I was going to sleep one night, and I was, there'd been some, a lot of radio, intel, radio communication among the Taliban. We thought we might get attacked, right? And it's a very scary prospect, because if it's a massive attack, you might wake up realizing you're all fighting for your lives. And I just thought, how nice, how reassuring to fall asleep knowing that someone's staying awake looking out over you. Yeah. And that's something that you don't experience. You know, the last time I had that experience, I was a child, yeah. my parents. And it's something all of us can relate to. You know, the mom and dad are awake, and I feel very secure in bed. And you drift to sleep. It's a wonderful thing. Well, they re-experience that, right? Every, every and, day. And then, <laughs> every day. And they really, they really rely on each other to just, among other things, stay awake, you know? Yeah. And that, I think that's why the Bergdahl case is so infuriating to soldiers. Like, not only did he... I mean, he left, like, yeah. you know, it's like mom and dad leaving. He's like, you don't right. just leave. This is us. Like, where are you going? Yeah. It was very painful stuff. Well, I, I want to thank you so much for the film, uh, for Korengal. And look, again, for uh, for people who want to know, K-O-R-E-N-G-A-L, themovie.com is where to go. You can buy the DVD. I would go to the theater because it is a big screen experience. And if you're in the Irvine area next weekend, uh, uh, Friday and Saturday, uh, you, you really should check this out. You're going to have men who served in that same location, and it, a remarkable, it had to be, an, you know, unbelievable set of circumstances for them, and for it will be for you as an audience to go see it. Uh, Sebastian Younger, thank you again so much for being here on Film School. My pleasure. Thank you. Take care. You've been listening to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. You can find out more about the program at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you next week with another edition of Film School Radio.